Containers offer a lightweight abstraction for running a server. Cloud providers are able to manage billions of containers from different users, allowing for economies of scale so that each user can pay less. Today, there is a variety of ways that users can deploy containers on a cloud provider. These containers can run in managed Kubernetes clusters, in functions as a service, or in long-lived standalone container instances. User preferences are getting more sophisticated, with some users showing an interest in Knative, an open-source serverless system originally created at Google. Whichever container deployment system you choose, your application and its multiple servers need a way to route traffic, measure telemetry, and configure security policy. A service mesh abstraction can help serve these use cases. Lachlan Evenson has worked in containers and Kubernetes since before the container orchestration wars. He was an engineer at Deus, a company which built an open-source platform as a service running on top of containers and Kubernetes, and Deus was eventually acquired by Microsoft, where Lachlan now works as principal program manager of Container Compute. Lachlan joins the show to discuss containers, Kubernetes, and the service mesh interface, which is an interoperable service mesh layer, which Microsoft launched with Buoyant. A few quick announcements. There are some conferences I'm attending in the near future. Datadog Dash in New York, July 16th and 17th. And the Open Core Summit, September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. We are hiring two interns for software engineering and business development. If you're interested in either position, send me an email with your resume to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com with internship in the subject line. Find Collabs is the company I'm building. We've launched several new features recently. If you have a cool project that you're working on, I would love to see it. I check out every new project that gets posted to Find Collabs, and I've been interviewing people from some of these projects on the Find Collabs podcast. We have a new Software Daily app for iOS. If you have checked out the app in the past, you would probably like these new updates. We've really freshened up the interface and improved reliability. And you can become a paid subscriber if you want to get ad-free episodes. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. All of these details are in the show notes. Let's get on to today's show. Lachlan Evenson, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You spent some time in the trading technology world, and trading technology is like its own planet. You have requirements for high performance. You have high scalability, high stakes. There's lots of money at stake, and there's lots of money to be spent on resources, but it's not like consumer applications. It's internal applications. Tell me about the unique requirements of building software for traders. So, yeah, you're referring to a job I had at a company called Trading Screen, in which I worked in, in both Tokyo and New York City. And what we would build or did, was to deliver a software platform where banks could trade with each other. So it was a sovereign company that would build both platform and distribution and network. In my specific role there, I was responsible for the core network where we would connect directly to exchanges, stock exchanges. So that game is around latency. 
So building very big pipes with very short latencies so that these orders can make it into the market with minimal hiccups. So it was very high frequency and high volume stuff. So those concerns were hard to design for in those days, but that's really where I entered distributed systems and building them, which led me to things like Kubernetes. What lessons did you learn in that environment that you carry with you to today? I would say the biggest lesson that I have is understanding failure and how failure affects the customers at the end. So obviously network failure, not many people are thinking about the network, just pipes, but obviously that was my job. So people would only get upset at me when there was a failure in the network, obviously. So understanding how things fail in the distributed nature where somebody is trading in New York City on a market in the CME in Chicago, how that is actually connected and how that data flow works um, is really just the basis of a distributed system. So understanding that in things like Kubernetes was, was, it gave me incredible concept, uh, context and insight into how to design and plan for failure. Another thing I can think of in the trading environment there's all these weird integrations, like old systems, new systems, old protocols, new protocols. That's kind of like the world we're easing our way into with Kubernetes, like Kubernetes and cloud-native stuff having to wire together really old systems and containerized COBOL. Does it, does it, you know, that archaeological dig feel? There was there an archaeological dig sense in in the in the trading world. Yeah, so you're talking about these very old systems, and you're trying to build new software to deliver services that are dependent on those systems operating. So you get into a lot of abstraction building and translation work. So you're basically in the job of building shims that can take one data source or one data stream, translate it to a common language route it across a platform, and then maybe translate it back to some older framework protocol. So yeah, it's all about building abstractions. And as you mentioned, it's kind of the same position that we're in now in things like Kubernetes. You eventually wound up at Deus. Why did you join Deus? I joined Deus because I had gotten into distributed systems and been responsible for building a cloud platform for a company who was trying to deliver containerized software both an on-premise and in public cloud. And the work that I did there led me to gain a lot of skills. And I also realized through open source that I really enjoyed helping people attain these skills for themselves and understand. And Deus was in the mission to kind of making Kubernetes easy to use through open source tools. And I had the opportunity to go and work with them. I'd met them many years earlier and I'd invited Gabe, who was the CTO of, of Deus, over to my office to check out some of the platforms we built. And subsequently, some of those tools, I was able to jettison. We built them in-house with things like Helm and Kubernetes. So I got a taste for open source through, I was in OpenStack and Kubernetes at that time, and Deus was doing Kubernetes. And I was in Kubernetes, I've been in Kubernetes for quite some time. So I had skills and I was really willing to go out and help other people get into the community understand how it worked and start solving problems for their businesses. So that's what Deus was looking for, and I thought it was a good fit. Deus had this really interesting acquisition story where the Deus team, if I recall, was 
Deus was acquired by Engine Yard, which was a uh, platform as a service provider. And then Microsoft acquired Deus from Engine Yard. Is that, was that the history? Is that- yes, that's correct. And that was interesting because Microsoft was realizing, oh my goodness, we need to get into the container game in a really big way. Who can we go out and acquire? Let's go for Deus. Let's get the Deus team. What was the acquisition like from your point of view? The acquisition was fantastic from my point of view. The onboarding was great. The continuity was great. And we came on as the Deus team, which was a small net. You know, we're only 30-odd people team into Microsoft, but we were welcomed with open arms. Yeah. We obviously had Brendan Burns or was already over at Microsoft, and we landed in a good spot, and we had a very clear mission as we came on, um, and we were given the resources that we needed to be successful. So out of that acquisition came services like the Azure Kubernetes service and a lot of the tools. So we had this heritage at Deus of building open source tools to solve developer problems, and a lot of that heritage is come into Microsoft as well with tools like Helm that we maintain. and But we're really focused on creating that great developer experience and that really solid platform. So that kind of acquisition at that time was, was great for me personally, and I think most of the team would agree with me. And it's been a, a smooth journey, and, and Microsoft has been very welcoming to all of us. So you were around for the container orchestration wars before Kubernetes won out. From your point of view, why did Kubernetes win? So, you know, for me, and I was I was in the trenches during this you time. Were. I was in the trenches and this was pre-Deus. So for me, I'll just speak from my experience. There were other container orchestrators out there and I certainly looked at them all. But Kubernetes had it was it was just a story of the right place at the right time. So we were already using containers in, in the company I was working for at that time. And I issued a challenge to my team when we were looking at Kubernetes because we'd heard about it. This was back in maybe late 2014. How long is it going to take us to get a workload or Kubernetes up and running and get a workload running on it? Because we'd already had containerized workloads at that point. And we were able to do it in a matter of hours. So that was just a really compelling first stab for us and I think it was one of the first things we tried so that ease and that API just gravitated with what we had we had service needs at that point so we needed long-lived services and and Kubernetes met the needs even pre 1.0 so I think it was it was the right tool at the right time and it did the things and met the expectations of what we needed so for us it was a tool that we went and used but I think that that also spoke to the power of the API and the depth of the API and the kind of operational behaviors and runtime behaviors it provided or what people were looking for. That's consistent with what I hear from other people, although at the time, Mesos was more advanced technology, right? And maybe even Docker Swarm might have been more advanced or fully featured. I know Mesos at least. Why was the experience with Kubernetes more fulfilling for you than what you could have gotten out of Mesos? I can't really answer that question because I haven't looked at Mesos in depth. It was just the right tool at the right time, and we landed on Kubernetes. I know that Swarm was coming out around that time, but I don't think it was quite out. So it was there. Any other reflections from the container orchestration wars? No, I think just the success of the open source community and the way they really built a community from the ground up 
and had people out there, you know, learning about Kubernetes, solving problems, iterating on the software really quickly to solve problems that were people were having. You know, we're still on a, a quarterly release. Actually, it's a, a three-month release cadence since the project started. So we're releasing new software every three months. So that means a lot gets fixed in a very short amount of time and new features are added all the time to meet the needs of the people that are using it. So I think that kind of nascent building community was instrumental in getting uh, mindshare around solving problems, which led to Kubernetes becoming extremely popular. What do you do at Microsoft today? I am a PM. I have a team of PMs and I work on upstream software, so open source software. Explain what upstream is versus downstream. Upstream is software that's in open source and we can take a dependency on that to build services that are downstream. So we can either maintain or contribute to that software. And something like AKS could be a downstream implementation of an upstream project that it is Kubernetes. So we pull that in and we make it a service and we make a great user experience. Kubernetes is the upstream project that's backing that. So you work on open source software? I work on open source software across the whole stack from developer tools to abstractions on top of Kubernetes right down to Kubernetes. So I'm on the PM side. So it's about sustained contributions to open source software and helping solve, you know, developer problems in open source. I know I saw your role was, I think, principal program manager of container compute. Is that right? Yes. That's your role. So what I presumed that was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I was thinking you would be involved in this palette of abstractions that we have, the... uh, First of all, you have the managed Kubernetes, uh, managed Kubernetes service. You have functions as a service, and you have I think they're called OCI or no, uh, sorry, ACI, 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 Azure Container Instances. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about those different abstractions, the different ways of running containers? Yeah, absolutely. So quite recently, we released an open source project called the Kubernetes Event Driven Autoscaler, CADA, and that was actually built with the Azure Functions team. So they saw a need and and a problem space for their users to deliver Azure Functions on Kubernetes, and they needed some componentry to do some auto-scaling. So our team actually went and helped the Azure Functions team develop working in open source because it was something newer for them that our team is, is constantly working in. So a project like that is a way that we see some value that we can give to the community and develop that in open source so that other members of the community can benefit from it as well. Let's talk about those different compute abstractions. So let's say I have a blob of computation that I want to run in the cloud. I have managed Kubernetes. I have container instances. I have functions as a service. What are the different application requirements that would map from my application to those different compute abstractions? So I would probably ask that question a little differently or answer it a little differently. Sure. It's about, so as you go up the stack, it's about different trade-offs, right? So what are you getting from the platform from something like a functions as a service system as opposed to Kubernetes or container orchestration raw? And it's just about how much of the, abstraction you want to understand or control, right? So in a functions as a service system, you're handing over your source code 
and having it interpreted, packaged up, and delivered. Functions as a service is event-driven, so there are different SLAs as to when events are triggered, consumed. So if you have something that might be very time-sensitive or requires a very intricate set of language features, functions as a service may not be for you. So it's about the right tool for the right job. You might want to pop down to container orchestration because... You want something that's low latency, can auto-scale, and you can control the auto-scaling. So you have a few more of the componentry of the underlying system exposed to you. And containers feels about the right abstraction. You can take your source, deliver your libraries, package it up in a container, and deliver that to a distributed system like Kubernetes and have it orchestrated. So it's about how much of the infrastructure do you want to know or control, and how much do you not want to control. It's different tools for different jobs. So they're all valid and important, but it's how much of that you want to take on and understand for whatever problem you're trying to solve in your business. And this is what I find so interesting about the range of things available here is it seems like there are so many cases where if you're an insurance company, for example, why do you care about running Kubernetes? Why wouldn't you just want Container instances, managed container instances. Like that, that is one thing about this whole space that seems surprising to me is that there are not more people going after ACI or Fargate and just saying, just give me a container instance. Why does everybody want to manage a Kubernetes? So it's that promise of interoperability and not being locked into a specific platform. So when you're making decisions about where you should run your software, Do you want to limit your options as to where it will run for longevity? Or you might have different, you might be coming from, let's talk about use cases here. You might have a a data center already and you want to kind of extend your workloads out as you're going through this microservices journey out onto the public cloud. So what's a system that can run in both places where you can create identical experiences and move your workloads over one at a time and Kubernetes is a system that can run on-prem, on public clouds, different public clouds. So that promise of if I deliver software to that abstraction, the only bet I need to place is on that abstraction. Where that abstraction runs and how that is delivered, I don't mind. That's opaque to me. But I know that if I move it from on-prem to on-cloud, it will run the same way. And that's the promise of Kubernetes. So people only have to place a bet on that API abstraction, which is Kubernetes. And then they have the flexibility to make the decision about where that runs later. So I think that's why people are interested in things like Kubernetes, because this is part of a larger journey of companies coming to public cloud, um, changing the way that they're building software. So yeah, that's why. But these are not like Heroku dinos. These are like you're deploying your container to a Docker container. It, it's it's an a- ACI is I believe a do- it's a Docker container. A- AWS Fargate is a Docker container. I don't think there's any kind of proprietary lock-in. And if you wanted to connect it to a Kubernetes cluster later on, you could do that through like virtual kubelet, for example, right? Well, why do you need the control plane, the Kubernetes control plane, to be managed by you? So if you're writing to something like ACI, you're writing to the ACI API. Right, which is not portable off Azure or Fargate, if I'm writing to Fargate. 
So I can't move that Fargate workload to Azure. But well, what, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but what about that API is proprietary? Like what's So there's no runtime that's going to implement it on any other platform. If I submit so in ACI you're submitting an ARM resource. I need the ARM APIs and the equivalent implementation oh, that can take that. What is ARM it? is the Azure Resource Manager. Oh. So you're coding to that Azure Resource Manager API or you're coding to, you know, the Cloud Run API if you were using Cloud Run or you That's, the Google, that's Google, the Google. Yeah. Google one is the Cloud so Run. So oh, okay. it's then not portable. So you go and build all this tooling around that API. Mm. Then you decide that maybe you want to try somewhere else and then you've got to go redo your tooling. So have a look. Let's flip that on its head. I use Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. I put in virtual kubelet. I connect that to ACI. That workload is now portable because the abstraction I've banked on is Kubernetes, not ACI. Got it. Because then you say, hey, Kubernetes, spin up a container. And it says, cool, spinning up an ACI container. Yeah. In that model, it's translating. It's handling the translation between the Kubernetes interfaces and ACI, right? So that's kind of the beauty of something like virtual node. You can get the serverless container. I don't really worry about running a node or a VM. I don't really care about the underlying toil that I need for that infrastructure. I just want to run a container, but I want that still to be interoperable and portable. This sets us up for a conversation around Knative. Have have you looked at that project very much? Uh, Yes, I have. What are your thoughts so knative is google it came out of google it is their spin on an open source serverless system where you say i want to have scale up and scale down for a container image it's an open source thing they have a an installation of it called cloud run that you can use on on google cloud other but since it's open source other cloud providers could have knative on their cloud Give me your diagnosis of Knative. So I would I would phrase this question as... I like what, you rephrasing my question. What, what, what is the problem that Knative is trying to solve? Okay, right? yeah. And we're going into this common abstraction problem, right? So people see common patterns emerge from running functions as a service workloads. So Knative is a set of componentry, build, serving, and inventing, eventing that provides base level abstractions in which you could build a FAS platform on top of something like Kubernetes. So you've got the Kubernetes, it's the same thing. I've got a democratized abstraction, Kubernetes. Now I want to build a FAS. Can you build the abstractions? Well, if you're going to build a FAS, you're going to need serving, you're going to need eventing, that you're going to need build event serving. Now I can build a platform because you've provided, you've commoditized those abstractions. I don't, as a user, I don't care how they're implemented, right? Because that should be opaque to me. Yeah. I just need to build. So I can go right. They can, they've democratized those set of tools in open source so that people who want to build a system on top of it have those building blocks. You're making a great pitch for Knative right now. So, well, I would say, you know, liken it to, you know, the announcement we made with uh, Service Mesh Interface. Right, So we made an announcement yesterday about service meshes being hot. A lot of people are using service mesh. So what service mesh interface trying to do, it's trying to commoditize. Okay, wait, let's talk, let's talk about Knative first. Okay, we'll get to the service mesh stuff later. Yes, I want to yes. go deeper on the Knative first. Sure. 
so you've presented a very appealing vision for Knative. Do you plan to offer some Microsoft equivalent of Cloud Run? We plan to offer what customers are looking for the problems that they're sol- looking oh, to solve. Okay. So we're driven by what customers are asking us. They're coming to us not asking for infrastructure tools. Mm-hmm. They're coming to us with problems. I have this workload. I have this use case. I have this business problem. So the way that we approach this is how do we build tools to solve those problems? You know, we want to listen to our customers and we listen to our customers and we help them solve the problems. Okay. So the thing that Knative solves, maybe this is just like a Google going off on a on a building an engineering thing that nobody actually needs kind of path, or maybe just Google needs it. Because what they say with Knative is, there is no function as a service. There is no container as a service. All there is is gradient of spin up and spin down. And there's a cold start problem that happens if you don't specify that I always need one of these things running, something like that. It's basically the unification of functions as a service and container as a service so that the user, I mean, the, this would be the user problem that they, they would be solving with this, if I was to take the words out of their mouth, hopefully, is you just bring us compute and we run it for you in a reliable way. You know, and there's going to be a cold start problem if you go down to zero, uh, zero QPS, but otherwise we're going to keep it high uptime and keep the scalability there for you. So is that just not, it's just not, are you suggesting that's not really needed by anybody because function as a service and container as a service and Kubernetes as a service gives actual customers enough options for running their compute? Like they don't need this additional... Knative solution, or help me understand. No, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that they don't need it. Okay. But I'm suggesting that there, if if there are customers with and community members with a problem to solve, and that provides the the solution to their problem, then that's certainly needed. But how that problem is solved, people don't come to us with technology problems. They come to us with business problems, and they're trying to serve their developer community internally or externally, how can they build software and have it run in a way that they need it to run? So objectively, whatever delivers is that for that customer is, however that is solved, they're okay with. And you you haven't seen the problem that Knative solves, at least in your customer base? I have seen people wanting to run functions as a service it's again, it's this abstraction. I'm betting on an abstraction like the Kubernetes API I mentioned earlier. Is that abstraction portable? Is it interoperable? Can I move it around? Those are questions that that's, people are answering. So tools like Knative and SMI are seeking to build platforms that are interoperable. So all right. solve that problem. Okay. All right. Interesting. Very cagey. Sounds like we'll have to do another show in the future on this topic. <laughs> but let's talk about what has been announced, which is SMI. Explain what the service mesh interface is. So what we were seeing from customers 
was a common set of problems. So service mesh is about taking it up the stack, right? We've got Kubernetes, but what do we need next to deliver our, to solve our business problems and, and help our application developers, right? And service mesh has been around for quite some time in this space. And what has emerged is a bunch of different APIs to deliver service mesh, right? With a cross section of features. Again, if you want to use a specific service mesh, you have to code to their specific API, which is generally not Kubernetes native. So you have to go and touch another system to program it. So what we're offering with SMI is a specification to unify that abstraction for service meshes. So our customers, again, are coming saying, we not saying we need a service mesh, but we want things like traffic management. We want to be able to route services the way we want to be able to route them. Think of problems like canarying deployments, so upgrading. We want telemetry. We want to know how many RPS, how many successes, how many failures we're having service to service. And we want to be able to impart policy. Can service A talk to service B? So with SMI, we've defined those three APIs in policy, traffic management, and telemetry. And it's a specification which any of the service meshes can then implement so that as users, they can use any service mesh they like and they actually don't need to worry about it. They use a common abstraction for service meshes and who implements that service mesh, it doesn't matter. So if I want traffic management, I can say this is how I want my thing routed, whether it's Linkerd or Istio or HashiCorp Console or Superglue the user doesn't actually mind as long as it's delivering the features they need for traffic management. So so part of that announcement was just a common set of APIs for the service mesh workloads without defining a runtime for them and having the runtimes implement those specifications. All right. Now, that's a very diplomatic abstraction to insert here, but wouldn't it be easier just to pick a winner? Can't you just pick Istio or pick Linkerd and say, this is the service mesh that we endorse? So I think people want to be able to. So at the moment, it's an all-in decision, right? And again, it's about portability and interoperability. I lay down a service mesh. There might be some features I want from one service mesh and others I want from another. Why does it have to be an all-in decision that you have to make immediately? And once you've made that decision and you code to those APIs, then you can't change and you don't create an ecosystem of can the best tool for the right, may the best tool for the right job come to pass, right? So it's enabling the ecosystem partners to come in, have a single abstraction and be able to implement the tooling they want to be able to implement the tool. This is not a new concept, CNI. So the, the container network interface, CSI, the container yep, storage yep, interface, yep. the ingress resource in Kubernetes is we define a specification and then people can implement that, the runtime of that specification. And it creates an ecosystem of tools and uh, runtimes that do different things. So, and people have the choice to pick whatever one they want. Describe the surface area. What does that interface of the service mesh interface, what does it provide? So... Today, as of launch, we have three discrete APIs, one for access policies, can service A talk to service B. We have uh, telemetry, RPS, failure rates, things like that, the wonderful 
rich information that service meshes give you and traffic routing, right? And we started there because that's what customers were actually asking us to solve. How do we solve this? Connection from service A to service B. Yep. Policy. Policy. That's security policy. Yep. So that's like, can the user who made the request for service A to talk to service B, does that user have the right security access policy? And then what was the third one? Traffic management. So saying that, you know, waiting traffic. Oh, so like A-B testing kind of stuff or canarying, right. Yeah, so we expect that more use cases will arise and more specifications will arise. But it's created that ecosystem that as as part of the on-stage demo, we had Istio delivering Istio delivering traffic management. We had Linkerd working with metrics and we had HashiCorp console Oh, deli- for security policy. For security policy. So That's they beautiful. all just implemented it. And the only thing that I would have to code as a user is that common SMI abstraction. Really? Right? And whoever brings the runtime as a user, the user gets the abstraction that they're, they're looking for there. Because you don't necessarily care how you do traffic management. You just know you want traffic management. Did the Istio community take part? in that service mesh interface launch? So the Istio community, we worked with Kin, Kinvolk to actually build the Istio shim. Kinvolk is a community member in Kubernetes that work on building different tools. So we work with them. They came in and helped us build the tooling around Istio. I need to talk to those people because I saw a presentation from them about Firecracker earlier in the week. I was like, Firecracker? Why are you working on that? And then... Now it's like service mesh interface. Like, who are you, future people? Yeah, so I think I think the the thing to think about with something like Istio is what do you need to change to make Istio support SMI? Right, you have two two things you can do. You can either write a translator, so a piece of code that watches SMI and translate it to Istio primitives, which is what the Kinvolt team wrote with the Istio or you can make Istio natively watch the API and implement it itself right so for the demos we showed they were basically translators so they would watch the SMI translate it to their speak the beauty of this is you don't actually have to leave the Kubernetes abstraction you get all the information in Kubernetes so when you're deploying these abstractions it's Kubernetes native whereas before you might have to go and program against a different API to get the feature that you wanted. Now you don't have to leave Kubernetes. So again, it's about that single pane of glass that you've got that abstraction and that API, you want it to be portable. And Kubernetes is very extensible, so we can plug in custom resources to do things like SMI. I like the abstraction, but only in today's context, right? Like if one of the underlying service meshes wins then you don't really need this shim. But I guess in this kind of environment, you probably don't have winners. You probably just have people who, like, win. Well, think, think about it like, let's take a look at CNI. Yeah. Right? There is a whole Talk ecosystem. So CM, CNI, the container net, networking interface. Yeah. So basically when Kubernetes was, was started, there was no single interface where different providers could bring the best of their networking tech to the game. Yeah. Right? Things were compiled. You couldn't change the networking stack. CNI was introduced and companies like Tigera with Calico, and it created a whole ecosystem of companies, tools, open source tools that implement it. Then 
I can say, well, I need this from the network. Yeah. I don't have to change Kubernetes. I just re- I tell it to use this provider rather than that provider. And I get the experience that I need from that cluster. So it's left the choice to me as how it wants to be implemented if I'm a cluster admin, but it doesn't make me choose one over the other. CSI is a more recent one, yeah. which is a storage container storage interface. So all the storage vendors are coming in and providing their plugins to their great storage systems. Just because you build CNI doesn't mean there'll be one storage system to rule them all. There are different operational factors. CRI. So we have Cryo, we have Container D, we have Gvisor, we have Cata Containers, we have all these different container runtimes, right, that have different ways that they run containers with different security boundaries. What is a container runtime? A container runtime is the thing that takes the container that you package it up and is the execution environment for that container. And Container D is one of those or what's... Yeah, so Container D is one of those. Cryo is another one of those. That's Container Runtime Initiative Dash. I think it was, uh, is it CRI open source? It was Red, so Red Hat pioneered Cryo. Okay. They call it Cryo, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. You're not not into into those weeds. (laughs) And so there's so many weeds to go into. It's only, and you have only so much time, only so much you can focus on. Right. But generally, okay, so this is interesting because this, I've gone to three or four KubeCons and this is like one of these subjects that I haven't haven't really delved into. I've gone into the CSI, the container storage interface, a little bit. I've talked a little bit about the CNI to some people. But now I'm starting to see the general trend is when you have a situation where there are competing components, you find the common interface between them that kind of brokers... The competition, it gives you the common interface, it, it, and those, provo- those competitors, they actually should be interested in having that interface defined because they know what they're competing over, and they're both going to be like you know, confident, competitive companies. They're going to say, hell yeah, we'll compete over, these, over this interface. Like, let's get it on, right? Let's define a common interface, so we're going to have customers to fight over. And it gives the customers a safe interface to buy into. That's exactly why Microsoft. It would make sense for Microsoft to 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 build this to or to lead the effort to make the service mesh interface and to say, look, our customers are coming to us and they're telling us we want a service mesh. We don't feel comfortable going with either Istio or Linkerd. And you say, well, geez, we just want to help you out. We want to make you feel more comfortable buying into this ecosystem let's make the common interface and, you know, let the competitors duke it out. So, yeah, that it's a common pattern that we see. And really it's about can we agree on the common set of problems we're trying to solve and lock them in and make it opaque to the user as to how they're implemented. So they don't have to actually... They may, you know, if the person's responsible for choosing the technology under the hood, but as a user, why should I have to program to one specific API if that doesn't make me portable at the end of the day? And in this abstraction layer cake, all the, all the abstractions are like this. We have a standard interface, and then we have uh, a tool where you can pick whatever for each 
need of the customer because customers all have different needs, whether they're storage, whether they're networking, whether they're service mesh. So we see that need and we allow our customers to make the choice for what's right for them. And of course, we want to create great experiences in these ecosystems. So we, we felt that doing this would actually help customers move forward with decisions in service mesh. Are there companies that you worked with as initial customers to get the service mesh interface launched and tested? So we basically worked with companies to get their requirements. What are they looking for in a service mesh? So when they say they want a service mesh, what do they mean? So, of course, we've been doing that over a long time. Services, service Mesh has been around for quite some time in the ecosystem. So from there, we wanted to rally uh, different people in the space and see if they thought it was a good idea. As part of the announcement, we announced with several other companies who were interested and said, you know, there needs to be that kind of growth in a new space to prove its value and there'll be different implementations come out for that kind of problem space but then there'll be a point where we try to re-aggregate back and create a standard this is kind of again a, a common pattern so we just felt like the time to re-aggregate and work with all the people in the ecosystem who are looking at service meshes to say do you think this is a good idea and they all came back and said yes so now we can actually start to work on building those implementations and gauge how that's working in front of customers and how they're using it. But I've been demoing it at the booth uh, since the announcement and the feedback has been quite very positive. The simplified experience and the burden of not having to choose up front and making it portable and not being locked in seem to be the, you know, which were the things we were looking at seem to be what I'm hearing a lot of feedback around at the booth. Do you think that there is too much concern from enterprises about lock-in because like the way I look at it is if you're an insurance company or you're a manufacturing company, you don't care about lock-in. All of this stuff is a rounding error. You just want to move faster, right? Like it doesn't matter if you're locked in. I, I can't comment on how they're feeling about lock-in. We do hear customers coming and being concerned about that, that being one of their concerns and a top priority. I, don't, I can't comment whether there's too much fuss around it because I'm not the one in the position making the decision. Yeah. I guess what I'm curious about is when people say lock-in, what I think of oftentimes is some proprietary provider that gets you locked in and then it costs a bunch of money. Like it caught, you have to, they just can ratchet up the subscription. They can charge you more and more every year and it's onerous, but you still get to move quickly. It seems like lock in in the modern context actually means if you get locked in, that means you're on technology that gets outdated and gets deprecated relative to the ecosystem. So you're actually looking to keep up with the open ecosystem rather than just cut costs with your lock-in, avoidance of lock-in. Yeah, I think customers are seeing the benefits of open ecosystems and how 
It can be a proving ground for new concepts and technologies. So again, it's about making a decision on an abstraction, right? What is the right abstraction? Because you've got to remember that when you place that bet on an abstraction, you, you then build tooling around to support that abstraction, right? So if you are in a case where you need to move for any reason, what's the cost to move? And understanding that cost to move or being able to mitigate it by using an open source abstraction, I think is something that is, you know, they're, they're probably thinking about closely. And with things like Kubernetes and having that portability, it's been one of the stories that we've heard time and time again, because, you know, we're still going through this cloud journey with enterprises and they're looking at the long game of how they move software around and how they build it and distribute it. So of course they want to take it into consideration because we're not looking at a short game here. We're looking over many, many years. What do your customers want out of multi-cloud support? I think multi-cloud support is is really, you, maybe it's just the, the vendor lock-in or being able to have flexibility to move. So again, and not have to retool. So I think that's that multi-cloud story again is around having a single administrative interface to deliver software regardless of where it runs, right? So I want to run on cloud A or cloud B, but I want to use the same system. That is obviously attractive because the alternative is to build a system for cloud A build a system for cloud B and somehow stitch them together. But you see a lot, I've seen a lot of that in practice where a company builds, let's say a company got started when AWS was the only cloud provider. Uh, A company like Thumbtack comes to mind or yeah, let's just take Thumbtack. Thumbtack is a gig economy platform. They're doing really well. They started on AWS but they use data services from Google. They want BigQuery on Google. So they stitch together cloud resources for upside rather than for downside protection. It seems to me like this... I mean, first of all, I, I agree that what you describe is a desirable outcome. You want... Like, it would be great if you could mirror all your bucket storage from like between... AWS and Microsoft, for example, and, and AWS and Azure. So that you have a reliable bucket storage. Like maybe you don't trust a single cloud provider. You think a cloud provider doesn't have the reliability guarantees that they say they do. So you, you mirror over to a different bucket storage system. That I think of as downside protection. There is also upside opportunity. I should be able to go get Cosmos DB you know, a service that is not available on other cloud providers. I should be able to go and get BigQuery from Google. I should be able to go and get Redshift from Amazon. Do customers want that kind of thing, the ones that you're talking to? Do they want the upside opportunity as well as the downside protection? Yeah, I see both cases. Yes, absolutely. And I would I would frame it in the, what is the system that's going to benefit us the most? And in the case of something like Cosmos DB, you know, if that makes sense for you, you can deliver it. And we, we've we worked on tooling to allow that even that to be Kubernetes native. But again, it's just like the runtime implementation. If you have a common abstraction, 
the runtime implementation that suits you best or what's best for you wins. It's about you've only made a bet on that abstraction. Where it lands, then you have more flexibility, right? Uh, so, But if I want – okay, the runtime abstraction is Kubernetes. That's great. If I use managed Kubernetes in one cloud provider and I want to connect it to the managed Kubernetes in, in another cloud provider – how good is that story today? Because what I hear from some people is that IAM policies make it not trivial because you have, okay, yeah, I run Kubernetes in this cloud provider and I run another Kubernetes in this other cloud provider, but the identity and access management systems in those cloud providers are different. And in each cloud provider, the IAM is deeply integrated with the Kubernetes. So Kubernetes becomes like closed right is am i am i misunderstanding something no i don't think you're misunderstanding there are sharp edges like that and let me speak to one specific example we're working on policy in kubernetes right now in a project called gatekeeper under open policy agent so this is a, and we're working with companies like google to solve kubernetes policy using a cloud native compute foundation incubator project called Open Policy Agent, right? So now we can talk about policy in the same way in Kubernetes using, and this is a case we have, Kubernetes is growing up. Enterprises are showing up to Kubernetes now. We, we need Kubernetes policy, right? So over on the upstream team at Azure, we're looking at those needs and looking at the open source community and saying, how do we create an experience that is interoperable and portable. So we went and we created this project, which is now called Gatekeeper, and we collaborate with other cloud providers because at the end of the day, we want them to have a great experience with policy on Kubernetes, and we can offer an integrated solution on Azure for that. But if they want to go and take that and run that somewhere else and on-prem, I want them to do it for it to be portable so they can have that experience on-prem because uh, they may have that. So... You know, this is a case where we go out, we see a customer problem, we go out and open source, we try and build consortium so we, we get rid of those sharp edges because at the end of the day, we're all in solving this problem. We know we can give them a great experience on Azure, but if they're coming, speaking a different language, then we have to do different types of work. If the language we're speaking is open policy agent, if you're on Google, Azure, I'm using those as example because they're collaborating in the community with us now, Suddenly, a lot of those sharp edges disappear. Like you were mentioning, I have this identity management. I have that identity management. I have this policy engine. I have that policy engine. So we're trying to come together and build tools in the open and then provide great enterprise experiences. So we, we built Gatekeeper in the open and we have Azure Policy for AKS, which is built on Gatekeeper, which gives you that integrated great experience on Azure. So this is ways that we can now get a customer to have policy regardless of where they're running, but we know we can give you a great experience on Azure. So could Gatekeeper be, or I don't know what that project is, that sounds interesting though, but does this provide, because I've done a show on Open Policy Agent, but does that provide, or does Gatekeeper or, or Open Policy Agent provide a way to, for example, translate my AWS IAM policies to parallel Google Cloud IAM policy? No, no. And it, it works as a generic policy engine. So it's not looking at IAM policies, although there are other endeavors that 
take care of policy it and having like it at a, such a hard problem. at a higher abstraction. So again, we're building them into. So we have a project called AAD Pod Identity, which is open source. So it's tied into Azure Active Directory. So your pods or your workloads get a unique identity, and it's Kubernetes native. So you're not touching Azure Active Directory. You're working within the confines of Kubernetes, but you have identity that Service A can talk to Service B through Pod Identity. So if that's portable and, and another cloud provider implements that, suddenly you're not worried about IAM as much. You're worried about identity. Does identity A have identity B? How that's implemented under the hood? Does identity A able to connect to identity B? How that works under the hood is not actually your concern anymore. It's about building these. And, you know, that's, that's the value of something like SMI and Open Policy Agent because if we use Open Policy Agent, we can actually have those policies are portable. So what you're saying is if you solve the workload identity problem, IAM is less of an issue. It's an implementation detail. Right. And is that because if you solve the workload identity problem, then it's just services permissioning to each other rather than you permissioning to you permissioning into a service and then having to permission yourself into all the different network hops? Yeah, right. So, well, it's kind of you don't have to leave the Kubernetes API to do it all of a sudden. So it's not like when I create an identity, I go over here and touch these APIs, then I wire them up through here and then push them over there, and then I can touch Kubernetes. It's kind of I go to Kubernetes, I create create an identity. That all magically wires up to you know Azure Active Directory, right? And then I say I want to use that, and I want to say that A can talk to B, and that's all wired up. So nobody knows that it's – Active Directory under the hood, but we've got that identity system there that can handle this. So, you know, solving that is an abstract problem then. It's just, I have identities. I want workload identity. Can workload A talk to workload B? Wherever that's running and however that's implemented, I don't actually care as long as the runtime guarantees are there. Okay. Well, it sounds like I need to have a conversation with Gatekeeper. Last question. You've been... Have you been to all the KubeCons? How many KubeCons have you been to? Three or four? This this is my, I was thinking about it last night, either my fifth or my sixth. Okay. How does this one compare to the last one? I am really amazed with the level of technical expertise in the community because I've watched it through the years. So people are coming with really interesting problems and questions, which for somebody like me is really interesting to see how the community is building on top of Kubernetes, trying to solve things like service mesh, um, identity, policy. So now at the booth, it's so great to hear from the community as to what problems they're having, but these are really higher level abstractions now. You know, back in the early Kubernetes, it was how does Kubernetes work? How do I deploy Kubernetes? What's Kubernetes do? Now it's like, okay, we're all okay with Kubernetes. What are we going to build on top of Kubernetes, right. right? And the enterprises are showing up. We have this problem. How can the community help? So that's what I really enjoy. So the level of the level of engagement and questions has been really invigorating for me at this KubeCon. People are smart. People here are just really smart. And I grew. One thing I like about these conferences, I grew up. You know the game Magic, Magic the Gathering. Yeah, yes, I, I yes. Grew, I grew up playing Magic a lot. <laughs> I played Magic tournaments. 
one thing I always loved about magic tournaments is the people are just shockingly smart, and they're there. You're there to play like a stupid little card game, and it doesn't really matter. And these, you know, weird abstractions like you know spells and lands and magic wands and stuff. But ultimately, you're there because you like socializing with these smart people. That's kind of how. I have felt that these, like, I come to these conferences and I'm talking about software and CNI and CSI and these, you know. <laughs> SMI, all the eyes. All the C-star eyes. C-star eye. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and these weird diplomatic conflicts between service mesh at a startup versus service mesh coming from a gigantic company. And, like, this stuff doesn't matter. I mean, it kind of matters. It's cool. It's really important. I mean, I think software that gets built with is great. But what I can say with certainty is that I am really enjoying the conversations at these conferences. Yeah, it generally, it short circuits my knowledge growth into a really right. toxic. I, I learn exactly. so much exactly. from everybody. I learn what think well, the From problem, like three or four days. Three or four days. It's, it's six months in my office and three days here I learn so much. So I come, I come with a kind of open mind to learn, and I really enjoy hearing what the what the community has to say and what they're trying to build. Well, here's to KubeCon. Yeah, here's to KubeCon. Thanks, Lachlan Evenson. Thanks, mate. Wow.